Welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors as they introduce you to their books and share their personal thoughts on the contents. Following today's interview, you are invited to join in on the conversation for this book on LinkedIn. Log into LinkedIn, search groups, and then join the group called Bookends the Discussion. You can pose questions and discuss this book with your colleagues and peers, as well as dialogue with today's featured author. You'll also find a link to the recording of today's interview. Invite your friends to join the group to listen and to discuss. I'm Susan Stam, and I'm pleased to welcome Kim Cameron to Bookends, whose newest book is Positive Leadership. And we're really pleased to feature Kim's book as the second book in our 2009 series focusing on books on employee engagement. To order a copy of this book today, you can visit bkconnection.com. Kim Cameron is the Professor of Management and Organizations at Michigan's Stephen M. Ross School of Business and the Professor of Higher Education at the School of Education at the University of Michigan. He's the co-author and co-editor of 10 books, including Developing Management Skills and Positive Organizational Scholarship. He is also the co-founder of the Ross School of Business for Positive Organizational Scholarship, which the Harvard Business Review recognized as one of the breakthrough ideas for 2004. This research center focuses on the investigation of positively deviant performance, virtuousness, strengths, and the practices in organizations that lead to thriving and extraordinary outcomes. Kim Cameron, welcome to Bookends. Thank you so much, Susan. It's a delight to be invited. Well, we're happy to, to have you here to share this, I think, really important work and timely work as well. Uh, in your book, you introduce us to a really a marvelous new idea, and you call it positively deviant performance. And you suggest that this is a much bigger and much more encompassing idea than just plain old uh, successful performance. Can you talk to us a little bit about how these two things are different and um, perhaps share you have a great illustration in your book where you talk about a contractor who was hired to clean up the two most dangerous buildings in America. Thank you, Susan. Um, to explain what we mean by positively deviant performance, I'm going to ask you to imagine in your mind uh, a line. Just a, uh, if you were to draw a line ac across a piece of paper in, in front of you, uh, we call that line a deviance continuum. Now, in English, deviance has a negative connotation. So if I call you a deviant, <laughs> it normally means uh, criticism or at least a disparaging label. But deviant simply means an aberration from unexpected performance from the norm. So we can think of negative deviance, problems, difficulties. We can also think of positive deviance, or in other words, uh, unusual, spectacular, extraordinary performance. So in, on this line, we would call the left-hand side of that line a negatively deviant condition. The middle we'd label as normal, expected behavior. And then the right-hand side, we call that positively deviant performance or positive deviance. So, for example, think of physical health. On the left-hand side, you'd call that illness. In the middle of the continuum, we'd call that health. Ninety percent of all medical research focuses on the gap between illness and health. So heart disease, diabetes, cholesterol problems, and so on are the major focus of medical research. Little 
is focused on the right-hand side, but we know on the right-hand side might be Olympic fitness levels or, you know, 5% body fat for men or 15% body fat for women or the ability to do 400 push-ups or run a triathlon, something where your physical body is significantly different, positively deviant. Psychologically, 99% of all publications published in psychological journals since the end of World War II focus on the gap between the left-hand side and the middle. So anxiety, depression, difficult marriages, relationships, and so on are the focus of most psychological research. But on the right-hand side, there is something else. We sometimes refer to that as flow, positively deviant mental performance, where you're using more of your brain capacity, you lose track of time and physiological needs. So you're in a state that's of a heightened psychological um, performance. All right, well, little research focuses on that gap. I refer to the left-hand side, that is from the left point to the middle, as deficit gaps. The, the difference between the middle and the right-hand side, I refer to those as abundance gaps. So or, when we talk about organizations, when an MBA student comes to the University of Michigan, most of the time, most of their courses will use case studies or examples where the primary challenge is what's going wrong, what are the threats, what are the obstacles, come up with some recommendations and defend yourself. In other words, get the organization or make recommendations to get the organization profitable, effective, efficient, capturing market share, making money. That's the middle of the continuum. Right. Most of the time we stop there. We don't think about the right-hand side, which I would refer to as uh, deviant performance, positively deviant, or sometimes I refer to that as virtuous performance. Mm-hmm. Now, the example you um, mentioned, Susan, of this organization in Colorado, 1951, the federal government created a place. Uh, it was called the Rocky Flats Nuclear Arsenal. It was the place that created or actually manufactured or produced the nuclear triggers or the triggers that went into all the nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal. So we were in a Cold War and the Soviet Union was stockpiling weapons. We said we have to stockpile weapons to keep the world safe for democracy. Well, this became the most dangerous place on the American continent because they were dealing with the most dangerous materials known to humankind, I mean, enriched uranium, plutonium, uh, various kinds of acids and whatnot, uh, the pollutions, uh, pollution levels were seldom monitored carefully. So nobody knew for sure whether the air was being polluted, whether the groundwater was being polluted, whether or not people in Denver were all going to die in 20 years of uh, cancer because of the plutonium uh, or, or radioactive pollution in the air and so on. So Nightline, the Ted Koppel mm-hmm. news program, did a special in 1994. The title of that special was The Most Dangerous Buildings in America, and they were talking about Rocky Flats. What a uh, really uh, difficult place that was. They had, you know, 258,000 cubic meters of radioactive material and nitric acids. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it was a, without going into detail, it was a very dangerous place. So... Cold War ended, Rocky Flats was shut down, and they said, we'll never again produce the, the triggers that you've been producing in the past. Well, you just can't walk away from a place like that with, you know, 100 tons of literally radioactive material, plutonium, for example, that if you walk away and let it oxidize and explodes, it just makes the eastern part of the United States one big lake. Um, so it was a very, very dangerous place. 
the U.S. government, mainly the Department of Energy, finally did a study because uh, when it was just idled, it still cost $700 million a year to keep the fans running, keep security guards there, keep uh, you know the, the uh, site safe. So they did a study and estimated that it would take 70 years, and they budgeted $36 billion. Oh, my goodness. Now, uh, in February 2009, $36 billion somehow doesn't seem like a big amount of money anymore, but it is a big amount of money. But I interviewed the Undersecretary of Energy who said, we didn't expect that we could possibly do this job in 70 years, nor did we expect we could do it with $36 billion, just because, I mean, how do you neutralize... 100 tons of plutonium. So we assumed, he said, it would take 200 years to really get the site clean and uh, safe. But nobody was going to bid on a contract for 200 years, so we had to pick another number that was reasonable. So we picked a lifetime, which was 70 years. Well, a company in Denver got the contract, competitively bid. They finished the job. That is, they cleaned up and closed Rocky Flats, 6,000 acres, 800 buildings, um, you know, essentially a small city. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if you cannot miss one square inch, it could be, I mean, you don't want to miss a square inch that could be radioactively hot right. uh, on that site. So you got to clean up everything. All right, well, they finished the job 60 years early, $30 billion under budget, and 13 times cleaner than required by federal standards. Amazing. So, sort of unbelievable, positively deviant performance. So we wrote a book on that uh, case trying to identify what were the levers, what was the leadership like, what accounted for spectacularly, um, you know, extraordinary performance. And we called it positively deviant performance. And uh, the book is about uh, not not the book we're talking about today, but mm -hmm. another book is talking about the explanation for that uh, effect. And the answer in one sentence is they lived and breathed a focus on abundance gaps, on positively deviant performance. That is, they were focusing on extraordinary performance, not just solving problems. They had to do both, mm -hmm. but they were unusual in, the, in focusing on the right-hand side of that continuum. Well, this is certainly very timely information for the time that we live in because we, we all need to be focused on that level of performance right now, I think. And um, you, you talk about positive deviant performance as the first connotation of positive leadership, which, of course, is the title of your book. And then you suggest that there are two others, um, the first, which you call affirmation bias, and then the second you've, you've already alluded to, which is this idea of fostering virtuousness. And that's something you don't hear too much about today. Could you highlight these two characteristics of positive leadership for us? Thank you, Susan. What we mean by an affirmative bias is, and, and the, the connotations of positive um, are important because the word positive sometimes gets negatively defined. Sometimes people say, well, are you just talking about smiling and being nice to people and, uh, you know, um, soupy, syrupy, saccharine, sweet uh, sort of uh, behavior? And the answer is absolutely not. You don't close Rocky Flats just by showing up happy and smiling at people. It's a very difficult thing to do. Well, one of the one of the things we study here is this idea of positive deviance and how do you get it, how do you recognize it, and how do you accomplish it. 
Another is the idea of this notion of affirmative bias, meaning a focus on strengths, for example, not weaknesses, a focus on optimism rather than pessimism, a, positive, a focus on abundance gaps rather than deficit gaps, a focus on, for example, positive communication rather than negative communication. For example, uh, there's a study done uh, here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where 60 top management teams came to Ann Arbor. Now, these were senior-level teams running organizations. We simply asked them to do work for a day in a room surrounded by one-way mirrors. On those, um, on the other side of the mirrors were graduate students coding the communication that was going on among the top management teams. So they were just doing real work, and the students were simply coding their communication. Well... They knew they were being observed, but after 10 minutes, they didn't really even care. Unbeknownst to the organization, unbeknownst to the teams, we categorized their organization as high-performing, medium-performing, or low-performing based on profitability, productivity, and then we had ratings of colleagues. It's called 360 ratings of colleagues um, on everybody in the room. So we had a sense of the extent to which they were seen as uh, effective leaders. If they scored above average on those three criteria, they were rated as a high-performing company. If they scored below average, they were later rated, uh, rated as a low-performing company. Okay, here's what we found, and it relates to this affirmative bias. One of the categories into which communication was coded was the number of positive statements made relative to the number of negative statements made. Now, what's a positive statement? It's helpful, encouraging, approval, supportive. A negative statement is contradictory, undercutting, disparaging, disapproval, and so on. High-performing companies had an average of five positive statements being made for every negative statement. Low-performing companies had an average of three negative statements for every positive statement. Now, a short conclusion is positive communication helped predict positive performance. Now, there are a couple of things that are important. That ratio, 5 to 1, is not 100 to 1. It's not 5 to 0. There's always corrective, difficult, contradictory, and sometimes disparaging or negative feedback given. But it's always couched in a positive kind of uh, environment or condition. And that ratio, 5 to 1, has been found to be almost universal in lots of different settings. There's a study, for example, by a psychologist, John Gottman, who studied newly married couples, asked them simply to um, hold a conversation about a topic that was controversial in their relationship, so budget or child-rearing practices or something. And then he tape-recorded 15 minutes of the conversation. Then he followed these couples for the next 10 years. He could predict with 95% accuracy who was still married or who was happily married based on a 15-minute conversation a decade before. Wow. And the predictive ratio was five positive for every negative statement in that interaction. And it happens in Olympic teams when you're coaching Olympic athletes. It happens in jury deliberations and so on and so on. Anyway, there's a pretty uh, well-confirmed ratio. So when we talk about, I'm going on too long, when we talk about an <laughs> affirmative bias, that's what we're talking about. And then the third connotation has to do with this virtuousness notion. And, you know, virtuousness is sometimes hard to swallow, especially in a professional setting or business setting. But virtuousness in the original Greek simply means the best of the human condition, the highest aspirations human beings have for themselves. So in music, the virtuoso is the most inspiring, best performer. And virtuosity in music and so on gets a sense of what that notion of virtuousness is. 
So we're talking now, <clears throat> excuse me, in our research about trying to identify what's the best of the human condition and the normal virtues that we think about, kindness and gratitude and compassion and forgiveness and so on, are, are part of those. That, that is, those get identified when people say that's the best we can imagine. <clears throat> we have discovered that when organizations implement and institutionalize those practices, seriously, getting... Um, uh, compassionate activity embedded in the organization's culture, forgiving mistakes, looking toward an optimistic future as opposed to blaming and holding grudges, and so on. What we discover is significantly improved performance, literally even financial performance and productivity, hard numbers, go up when organizations um, focus on those things. So those are the three connotations that we're focusing on, and that's what we mean when we, when we, when we use the word positive. I was really interested in, in your discussion about uh, ratios, uh, being a student of behavior modification and starting my career in human services because we, you know, focused on those ratios to change behavior. Um, and, um, and it was right in line with what I've always believed, so I really appreciated that. Um, in, in, in discussing the benefits of, of positive deviance, these are pretty obvious and enticing and as you know, right now in, in our current situation in our economy, we have lots of organizations that are doing downsizing. And I was really struck by the example that you shared about a hospital, the Griffin Hospital. And I, I thought this was a really important um, uh, example for you to share with folks during these times that we find ourselves in. Could you tell us a little bit about their experience and how you feel positive deviance played a role? Thank you, uh, Susan. I, you know, it's difficult, as I mentioned. It's not just smiling and s smiling and uh, having a sort of a saccharine sweet uh, demeanor, <clears throat> because there's a there's a statement that's a truism, and that is that all organizations exist to eliminate deviance. That is, the reason we organize in the first place is to eliminate unpredictable, variant, deviant <clears throat> behavior. So by organizing, I mean, if we all said, let's go build a Habitat for Humanity house, well, the first thing we do is we've got to get organized. We can't just send everybody out to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. So organizing eliminates negative deviance. It also eliminates positive deviance. It eliminates anything unexpected <clears throat> but on the positive side. So organizations inherently are, are built in order to be normal, predictable, standard, uh, and in the middle of the continuum, non-deviant. So there's enormous amount of resistance. If the organization starts deteriorating, we pay a lot of attention, focus a lot of resources. On the other hand, if it gets to be a little uh, aberrant on the other side, the same thing happens. So it's easy to see why deviance is so difficult to create um, on both sides. Griffin Hospital is an interesting story of an organization that, um, that actually pulled it off. And I'll tell the story briefly. Uh, Griffin Hospital was struggling, as many healthcare organizations were. The president and the CEO, two different people, um, ended up deciding to fire the head of operations. Now, the head of operations was the one person that most of the staff believed in. They thought he was the most positive, energizing person in the organization, and he was the real champion, and they were very upset when he was fired to let go. So they actually organized and um, stormed into, interrupted the board meeting, demanding 
that this this person be rehired. And there was such a flack that was created that, as it turned out, the CEO and the president both resigned. And the fellow that had been let go was hired back, and he took over both those roles, president and CEO. Well, he discovered within six months that the organization was in such bad financial condition, I mean, it was literally almost out of business, that he had to downsize. And so he was faced with the challenge of having to let go some people who had been verbal, vocal advocates of his coming back. I mean, good friends. You've got to let your good friends go. The way he did that was just a marvelous example of um, the way you do it right, a positive leader faced with a difficult situation. And um, bottom line, the fundamental way he did it was that he um, implemented a, a virtuous culture. He focused on abundance gaps. And there are a lot of stories about that. I mean, in the maternity ward, for example, he created double beds so when women went in to deliver their husbands could sleep with them in the beds as opposed to sitting in the chair and and uh every other room there was a there was a room made made available families to gather so you didn't have to go downstairs and sit in the waiting room and uh, people could be near the person being treated and uh optimistic paintings uh, original painting artwork on the wall and and uh, pets came in to help people as they're real and so on anyway there's a quotation I used in the book, and it's actually a combination of two or three different interviews of people that we were just talking to about what had happened <clears throat> after downsizing. Uh, lots of stories that are wonderful. But, but the quote, one of the quotations is, one person said, we were in a very competitive healthcare environment. They're, by the way, in the Yale New Haven hospital environment, and so you'd say, well, if people want to go to a hospital, they go to the Yale hospital, but Griffin Hospital is doing enormously well. Anyway, very competitive healthcare market, so we have differentiated ourselves in the following way. Compassionate and caring culture. Sounds trite, but we actually love our patients. People love working here, and our employees, our employees' family members love us too. Look how many times the word love is used. Even when we downsized, Pat maintained, Pat Charmel was the CEO, Pat maintained the highest levels of integrity. He told the truth. He shared everything. He got the support of everyone by his genuineness and personal concern. It wasn't hard to forgive the fact that we had downsized. So, yeah, you just look at some of those quotations, and the words that began being highlighted are kind of virtuous words. We became a place that was forgiving and compassionate and caring and trustworthy and loving and so on. Anyway, it's a wonderful example of an organization. The result of that is they're in the 25 best places to work. Their profitability has been remarkable. They turned the place around. They, of course, have been able, because they're growing, to rehire the folks back and so on. So it's a wonderful story of how it really works. It can't be done next weekend. I mean, the results don't occur in the short term. But investing in human beings always pays off. Yeah, it's, it's particularly a great example for this particular time uh, because that was the kind of environment that this story happened within. And um, so I think it's, 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 a, it's a great story to, to be looking at the power of all this. And I think that's a, a really good segue into the next area because, Kim, in, in a lot of the work that we do in, in trying to go into organizations and build 
positive emotions in the workplace, we sometimes actually encounter leaders who feel that this is touchy-feely, low-value stuff. I'm sure you just can't even begin to imagine that. <laughs> can, can, you, can you tell us a little bit? about what actually happens to us as we are experiencing positive emotions and how this actually affects our work? Uh, I will. There, we have a wonderful colleague who used to be uh, at Michigan and unfortunately moved to North Carolina. I know we have one listener on North Carolina. Um, and she still remains a wonderful friend, but she's enjoying a lot better weather than we have in Michigan, especially this time of year. But. Barbara Fredrickson has done uh, work on positive emotions and has created something called the Broaden and Build Theory. And her find, she's an experimental psychologist, so she does things in the lab, and frequently her um, subjects are students. But the results are very clear and very compelling. When you induce positive emotions, and she does that, for example, by having people just watch films that would be uh, uplifting versus scary versus sad versus neutral. When you induce positive emotions, you, you, uh, the broadened part of the theory is you actually increase your cognitive uh, acumen, your, your capability to think more broadly. People process more information more accurately and remember longer when you can induce positive emotions versus negative emotions. And if you can induce positive emotions, it down-regulates the difficulties. So when things are really tough, if you can induce positive emotions, it's hope, for heaven's sake. It's why the, cat, the country got captured by the audacity of hope, because it, uh, we, we have a tendency toward believing in and wanting to focus on virtuousness. But anyway... But the broaden part of the theory means that you actually broaden your repertoire both behaviorally and cognitively, and you, you can build on it. Now, let me give you an example that's a real example, I think a pretty dramatic example of how that works. There's a study called the Nun Study. It's quite famous now, and it's a study of 678 Catholic nuns living in a convent. The study was originally a study of Alzheimer's disease, so it was funded by the National Institutes of Health, because the women were between the ages of 75 and 104. Now, the clever thing about that study was that these women all had essentially the same diet, same exercise regimen, same climate. So you can study Alzheimer's disease and really uh, control for a lot of factors. But there was a side finding that came out of that study that I thought was very interesting, and here it is. They found the journals or diaries of 180 of those women when they entered the convent 60 years before. Some of these women were saying things like this. <clears throat> This is the culmination of my life's dream. I'm so happy to enter the order. This is such a blessing. Some number of the women were saying things like this. This is going to be really tough. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a great sacrifice. But I'm committed and I'm going to follow through. So difference, one was approaching this with positive emotions, the other with a vigilance, sort of, ah, it's going to be tough, but I'll do it. Then they simply counted the number of nuns alive 60 years later. Now, there are a lot of ways to... Uh, report the results, but here's one of them. These numbers are not exactly accurate, but they're close and they illustrate the result. After 60 years, in the first group of the 90 nuns, uh, 70 were alive. In the second group of the 90 nuns, 10 were alive. Now, those aren't exactly accurate, but they're close, but they certainly illustrate the results. When women, after 60 years, focused on the positive, positive emotions, they simply lived longer, and that's been confirmed many times. Less uh, disease, less 
stress, all kinds of um, all kinds of physiological as well as cognitive um, uh, benefits arise from this notion of positive emotion. So, creating a positive climate in an organization simply means by and large, having people experience positive emotions. Positive climate and positive emotions are essentially the same thing. Well, and we really need them right now, for sure. You, 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 you also cite some really fascinating research um, by a, a team led by uh, Ballmeister um, that suggests that as far as developing our potential is concerned, bad is stronger than good. Can you explain this and tell us a little bit about how this um, information would live alongside the need to focus on our strengths? Sure. Um, one of the yeah buts that often occurs when we have conversations like this, people say, yeah but, yeah but Cameron, you're just uh, pulling the wool over our eyes. That is, look, you can't really ignore difficulties. The world is not a benign place. You know, uh, this sounds a little too saccharine sweet for me because reality is just different than that. And uh, this colleague, this fellow, Roy Baumeister, wrote an article about five years ago in which he surveyed a lot of research, and the title of his article gave the gave away the fundamental message, and that is bad is stronger than good. So let me illustrate it. So, Susan, if, if uh, when we all logged on or called the phone number and you greeted us and, and you heard from one person, gee, Susan, it's so glad, I'm so glad to be here. Somebody else said, Susan, you're doing such a wonderful thing. And a third person said, Susan, you're an absolute jerk. You, I don't understand what you're doing. And the third person said, you're just terrific. And the fourth person said, you're just terrific. I mean, the question is, which piece of feedback would you pay attention to? Oh, you know. That negative would just overwhelm the positive. And so we, that's just an illustration of what happens to us. One traumatic event as a, as a child overwhelms one positive event as a child, for example. And that's what Baumeister was pointing out. All right, the question then is, why is that? Is that because human beings are basically negative or focused on the negative? And the answer is no. As it turns out, all living systems, and I write about this a, t a little bit in the book, all living systems, everything alive, has a tendency toward positive energy and away from negative energy. Now, in nature, that's generally light, sunlight. That's positive energy versus negative energy. Or the best way to state this, and it's called the heliotropic effect, the best way to state it is everything alive has a tendency toward that which is life-giving, and away from that which is life depleting. And that tends to be positive energy, light, and so on, rather than negative energy, and so on. So living things are repelled by that which threatens. Okay, why then is bad stronger than good? It's because from the time we were very tiny in the crib, we learned that if you ignore negative feedback, it could be dangerous. So ignore the sense of falling, ignore loud noises, you know, ignore the sense of, uh, ignore the sound of screeching tires as you walk across the street, life's over. On the other hand, if you miss a pleasant experience, well, I've missed a little pleasure in my life, <laughs> life's not over. So what we've learned from very early on is, uh-oh, pay attention to negative feedback, otherwise it's dangerous. So what happens over time is that we learn our way out of this focus on the positive or the heliotropic effect. That is, the characteristic of living systems is heliotropic, but we learn to protect ourselves against it. That's why we organize primarily to get rid of problems 
rather than organizing to foster flourishing and extraordinary performance. And so the the uh, uh, practical prescription is that when we organize, when we raise families, when we have friendships or, or colleague groups, we need to focus more on the positive, that is, we need to emphasize the positive more than the negative in order to overcome the power or the, or the negative effects of uh, negative feedback. So um, that's why, for example, the five-to-one ratio in communication works so well. Or in a positive, in a, in a relationship, in a marriage, there simply has to be more supportive, nurturing, loving behavior than negative behavior, because one spat can be uh, devastating. Uh, so uh, in almost every human interaction, the positive needs to overcome, needs to be emphasized more than the negative in order for flourishing to occur. And the five-to-one ratio is just one of those examples. Yeah, it's a really powerful one. In, in your research, you identified three characteristics of high-performing organizations that promote this idea of a positive climate. And the first of these was compassion. And you, um, you identified, as you looked at compassion, three enablers of, of this in the workplace. Can you tell us a little bit about compassion and, and these three enabling processes? You bet. Thanks. Uh, the idea of compassion actually emerged out of some research by a colleague here at Michigan. And by the way, I should say, I should have started out this way. The book, this book, Positive Leadership, is not just one more storytelling book. And I'm not, I certainly don't disparage or for a minute criticize the storytelling books. I mean, the CEOs and the consultants who have written books saying, here's my experience or here's the people I talk to and here's their experience, do us a great service and they're, they're wonderful. But we don't need one more of those, certainly not for me. So this book is a book focused on empirical research. That is, I don't share anything where there isn't research that confirms that this works. So there has to be evidence that compassion actually improves the bottom line performance of an organization. Otherwise, I wouldn't mention it in a book. The original study on compassion was done by a colleague who discovered that compassionate responses when things go wrong or when there was difficulty or pain in the organization um, have a dramatic effect on performance. We all sort of know that. Most organizations have some pain or some most people have some pain in their lives and a compassionate response always is better than a non-compassionate response. And so the question is, without going into much detail about that question, the question is how do you do that really in an organization? What does that mean? Well, the prescription is, number one, something called collective noticing, or in other words, when people are struggling or having difficulties or there's pain in the organization, frequently it's swept under the rug, it's not made public, or it's, oh goodness, that's too uncomfortable to deal with, let's not make it, um, let's not surface it. Compassionate organizations do the same, make it legitimate for people to actually bring their whole selves to work so that if there's pain and difficulty and trauma in their lives, it's possible to see it. Um, this, the study actually was motivated by a faculty member whose child was abused by a babysitter. She had a joint appointment in two different departments. One department uh, was just enormously compassionate and nurturing and 
so on. The other one was sort of cold, hard, calculated, and dead. You know, so look, get on with your life, lady. This is your problem and not ours. You know, it was not. It was such a dramatic difference. She decided to start studying the extent to which compassion really does make a difference in observation wow. performance. So once collective noticing. The second is collective feeling. That is having opportunities to actually display emotions. Um, in one particular study, for example, some uh, young MBA students uh, were in apartment fire. They were all foreign students, not born in the U.S. Everything in their entire apartment was destroyed: computer, class notes, everything. Um, there was a there was a actual a, actually a meeting held in which publicly they, uh, uh, the dean of the school, as well as other senior officers, acknowledged the difficulty they were having. The dean actually took out a personal check, wrote a check saying, I'm going to give them money because they're going to certainly have some expenses, including buying clothes and food. <clears throat> and the, the whole notion was there's a way to make uh, the, the public display of emotion legitimate. And then the third is, of course, responding, but responding in a calculated, structured way. So having processes in place in the organization where when there is need for response, there's possible to do it. In that particular case of the apartment fire, there were email um, uh, networks set up. There was a, a volunteer place where people could volunteer to bring class notes when they were in the same class of these students. Somebody loaned them a computer. The, you know, the institution had housing from that they used for executive education. They gave them free housing until they could find the other uh, housing on their own and so on. In other words, the routines were in place that these people could simply become part of that. All right, so the notion of compassion isn't just feel bad. It really is make it legitimate, find a way to have emotions be uh, displayed, and then have a process in place where you can actually respond. Not rocket science. It's just that Will Rogers, I think, was the guy who said, well, common sense ain't necessarily common practice. And not common in most organizations. So true, so true. You, you share two others, two other characteristics, and, and one was forgiveness, which I think is also a, a rather uncommon thing um, in, in life and certainly in the workplace. Um, and the final one, which I'd really like to focus on, is uh, gratitude. I was really uh, grateful to see this um, as one of the three characteristics. And I really enjoyed reading about what you called gratitude journals. Can you tell us a little bit about these and the psychological, I'm sorry, the physiological implications of gratitude? Yeah. Um, the, the really wonderful, at least I think it's wonderful research, is by a fellow named Bob Emmons at the University of California, Davis, who started this research quite a long time ago in the following way. He simply asked students in his class to keep a journal. So if we were all in the same class and I were the professor, I'd say, okay, I want everybody to keep a journal. You have to write in your journal every day. Or, by the way, it also works if it's simply once a week. But let's assume for a minute we're going to ask each person to keep a journal for a day. And I assign half the class to write down three things every day for which they're grateful in their journal. The other half of the class gets the assignment to write down three things that they're for which they're not grateful. That is, we're frustrating, which hadn't happened. Or even just write down three neutral things. And then at the end of the semester, I will have kept data and gathered data throughout the semester on things, for example, like uh, number of headaches, amount of uh, number of colds, 
a number of days missed in school. Um, I will have I will have captured um, uh, the extent to which grade points, uh, grade point averages, or grades for the course, but not only this course but other courses were affected. And uh, other things. There, I, I, I there. <laughs> I'll, in fact, I'll tell you in just a minute. But anyway, the notion is those students who kept a gratitude journal would have done far better, statistically speaking, than those who kept a journal of frustrating things. See, a variation on that is simply write down the three best things that happened to you today versus the three worst things that happened to you today. And actually, you can tell, there's a, there's a really wonderful study that was a couple of years old now, but it shows what happens to your brain when you're in a gratitude condition versus a frustration condition, and there's not only more areas of your brain activated, but that places that are activated are activated to a greater extent. I mean, that literally, your brain is, is, responds better to, the, the human condition is much more attuned to gratitude than it is frustration. So another study, for example, was giving everybody at the end of the semester a flu shot. At the end of seven days, you test for the number of antibodies in the systems of the people. The folks who have kept a gratitude journal after one week have more antibodies in their system. They're healthier in one week than those who kept a journal that either had neutral or negative events recorded. And there, there are a lot of others. There was an interesting study done of people who lost their spouses, that is, uh, individual, individuals who either through death or divorce had lost a spouse. At the end of six months, in the gratitude condition, there was zero percent deep depression, organically determined de depression. Uh, six months later, in the non-gratitude group, there was 30 percent deep depression. So there are many studies, actually, that are beginning to emerge about the physiological, not to mention psychological and social, impact of gratitude. I mean, there's even a study done of what happens when you write, thank you very much, if you're a server in a restaurant, thank you very much, sign Sue, on your check on the bill. And as it turns out, on the average, you get 11% higher tips. <laughs> People tend to respond to that. Anyway, there are a lot of interesting studies, some more profound than others. But gratitude, as it turns out, is a, is a pretty powerful predictor. Yeah, simple and powerful is true. I'd like to, to shift just a little bit and, and talk. Uh, in your book, you, you share a process that you call reflected best self-feedback, and I just love this. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this idea and, and, and describe, if, if you would, does this, you know, your, your focus on this, this positive feedback, would this actually trump our need for more traditional feedback processes such as 360-degree feedback assessments that organizations um, use? What are your thoughts about this in, in developing positive leadership? Thanks, Susan. We've developed uh, here at Michigan a little instrument which we claim is a good supplement to but not a substitute for. 360 feedback, or this feedback from subordinates, peers, and superiors, which we often call 360. Let me explain it, and I'll, t I'll let me explain this uh, feedback that we call reflected best self feedback, and then I'll tell you why I think it's a good supplement but not a replacement. We often, uh, well, when people get 360 feedback, uh, what happens is they rate themselves on a certain uh, number of dimensions or items. You're a good leader, you're a team builder, you motivate your people, and so on. And then my people would rate me on those same items. Almost universally, when I get that feedback, 
back, I look for where my people are rating me lower than I'm rating myself or lower than I want them to, and I start focusing on those areas. That is, the primary motivation is overcome the real problems or weaknesses you have so you can become a better leader. Now, on the continuum, back, back to the deviance continuum, that takes me from the left-hand side to the middle. If I work on difficulties or problems or obstacles, I can, in fact, improve myself, but I get to confidence right in the middle. So what we've done is supplemented that, and we've said, look, we need to have people focus on the right-hand side of that continuum somehow. How are we going to do it? So here's the, here's the tool we use. We ask people to identify 20 or 30 folks who know them well, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, whoever, sometimes people in each of those categories. And we ask them to then request of these 20 people the following. We say, ask the, ask the people to simply write you a story or an incident when you have added unique value in the circumstance. Or in other words, when you have done something that is special and unique and valuable. Now, a variation on that is write, when you write a paragraph when you've seen me display my best. That's sometimes less behavioral and so often not as useful. But if you have people say, write a paragraph when you've seen me do something unique and special that was really valuable, you get back 60 stories, short incidents. We then take people through a process where they focus on what is it that's common about these stories. And what we discover is that frequently family members and co-workers are going to point out exactly the same thing so that there end up being really dramatic themes. And it's not unusual at all for people to say, well, gee, these are really easy for me. I mean, this is kind of natural. I didn't have any idea people really valued this attribute or this behavior because I just do it all the time. Or I don't even have to. It doesn't take extra courage. It's just something I do. You'd never check it off on some kind of strengths finder. You'd never describe yourself that way. But getting the feedback, behavioral feedback from others, helps you identify where your real strengths lie or where the, where the unique value uh, emerges from your behavior. Then we take people through a process where they start capitalizing on those strengths. Where, what kind of uh, conditions or con- what kind of context uh, is most natural for me to display those? Let's see if I can reinforce or reproduce those. Uh, when is it that I'm uh, around to what kind of people am I most uh, likely to display these strengths? Let me try to uh, duplicate that more often. And, and let me just simply be aware of what I'm, where I'm really adding value. Sometimes I'm not aware of it and it becomes accidental. So what we're trying to do is supplement 360. People certainly have to work on weaknesses and areas where they want to develop, but we're also trying to help people develop on their capabilities and strengths and uniquenesses so that they can even get better. It's moving from the middle of the continuum to the right-hand side. I just want to revisit that for just a moment. Um, when you talked about the 360 in the beginning of your comments there, and you talked about that would take us from the left side to the middle, and then the, the focusing on these positive uh, attributes would take us from the middle to the end. Is it possible, um, you know, going back to, you know, kind of some of my, my roots in, in working in the human service industry with um, 
helping people change behaviors. And we would identify people that had what we called splinter skills, where they were maybe way on the positive end of the scale in very specific areas, but then they had some huge deficits at, at other ends of the scale. So are you suggesting then if we only focused on the positives that we still could have some, some serious deficits on the left side of the scale? Absolutely, and well stated, Susan. Um, your experience, <clears throat> excuse me, is the same as my experience. I mean, for example, think of physical health. I mean, I can do push-ups all day long, but if I've got diabetes, I've got to pay attention to that on the left-hand side, in other words. But I can get consumed by disease. I can spend all my time worrying about my problems and never capitalize on my strengths. So the answer, of course, is both. It's just that most of us, I do this, I find myself so uh, um, oriented toward focusing on problems, focusing on difficulties. I mean, the environment right now, the economy is in the tank. I mean, everybody's worrying about stock prices. It's, it just goes down 200 points every time you turn around, and you think, holy cow, we're in a tough position. We can be so consumed by that, we never do get out of that vicious cycle. You can't ignore it. But if you spend all your time there, what we've discovered in our own research is that neither, neither individuals, people, nor organizations flourish. And what we're about is trying to help people flourish. Yeah. Thank you. In a, in a section uh, of your book on implementing positive strategies, you discuss implementing a personal management interview program, and you share two key components of this process. To wrap up our, our time with you today, Kim, would you be able to give us an overview of these two steps and discuss any challenges we might encounter from, from managers, particularly with the second component? I will, Susan. This is a... Uh this is a little tool or technique that we've developed uh, where, of course, research uh, confirms that there's a real impact. We took, for example, teams, um, some of whom were exposed to this thing called the Personal Management Interview Program or a PMI program, some not. Uh, the data suggests, for example, that uh, when, when these teams went back home, and teams were intact units working together, consulting teams, project teams, sometimes um, emergency room teams, even in a hospital, things like that. When they implemented this, performance went up. When they didn't implement it, performance didn't change. When they implemented it and then stopped over a period of time, performance deteriorated again. So the results of the, of the research were pretty clear that when you implement this PMI program, performance tends to go up markedly and performance as indicated by several different factors, not just one. But So what is it? What is this PMI program? Well, a PMI program is very simple. It's not rocket science at all. Again, it's a supplement for things like annual performance appraisals. A PMI system consists of, number one, an initial, what we call role negotiation meeting. This occurs on a one-time basis with a manager in each of her, his or her direct reports, with a parent in each child, with a coach in each player. It can happen in any setting. I've done this personally for the last 25 years probably in community service and in academic uh, settings, in a research setting, as a dean of a business school, in a church environment, and just lots of different environments. So it doesn't really matter what the environment is. PMI tends to work, and it works in the same way. 
So the first step is this role negotiation session in which you sit down and simply clarify expectations and roles. What's my role? What's your role? What are the performance expectations? What's the reward system like? What are the values here? What kind of behavior do we tolerate and do we not tolerate? What, how, how do you get celebrated when you're here? What is the uh, accountability system for what are you accountable and how often and so on? Now, it's not rocket science at all, but most people learn on the job. They don't have this kind of a uh, sort of role clarification session. So at the end of that, we're very clear about what your expectations of me are, what mine of you are, what the job is, what the organization expects, what the culture is, how I fit, how I can be successful. That's a one-time meeting. We keep track of that by writing it down. It's sort of a psychological contract, except we keep track of it. And we do that with our children. I mean, who takes out the garbage on Friday morning? That sort of thing. And we don't have to keep talking about that because we already had that discussion once, and here it is. Okay, that's followed then by an ongoing, one-on-one, regularly scheduled meeting between the manager and each of his or her direct reports. Now, in the research we've done, I've never seen it work effectively less frequently than once a month. So this is a once-a-month meeting, one-on-one, private, between a manager and each of his or her direct reports. It does not substitute or replace a performance appraisal, annual performance appraisal. It rather has several other uh, objectives. Number one is the objective of continuous improvement. As a result of this meeting, if we don't improve something, we're wasting our time. So the focus is on improvement. We have to get better. A second is it's an opportunity for feedback, two-way feedback. So nobody ever gets enough feedback. I mean, you don't get enough feedback. I don't get enough feedback. This is a chance to enhance that, and it's two-way, and it's honest, and it's authentic. It's also a time for accountability. We make sure we're making progress, and we keep uh, a focus on what the goals and objectives are. And it's a time for uh, appraisal and feedback, and the, the root of the word appraisal is praise. So this is a time for that five-to-one ratio. This is a time for celebrating. It's a time for patting people on the back. Now, there's always a one. You always have to correct behavior and help train and develop people. But this is a time to help them feel like they're making progress and to guide and nurture them. So this becomes a mentoring meeting, a personal development meeting, a celebration meeting, as well as an accountability meeting, a task-checking meeting, an opportunity to clarify goals and objectives for the organization, and so on. Now, there are lots of stories to tell, as well as having the empirical evidence about uh, how this works. I think of the consulting arrangements, or, or uh, uh, well, the, the uh, arrangements I've had with various companies, this probably is among the most implemented change strategies that I've seen. And then reporting back, having people say, this has made more difference than almost anything I've seen in my organization. That is... Uh, to, to actually sit down for an hour. The meeting lasts for about an hour. That doesn't start out for an hour because people have a really difficult time trying to figure out what in the world we're going to do for a full hour. But it becomes both a supervisor or a manager's meeting and a subordinate's meeting. So we become partners. It's not my meeting that you'll come to. It's not that I have an agenda and you're going to show up. It rather is you have an agenda. 
I have an agenda, and we're going to handle both of our agendas in our meeting. I can count on one hand in 25 years somebody's shown up without an agenda. There's always agenda items. And so as a result of this meeting, uh, we've measured everything from soft things like morale, creativity, intent to stay or leave, in other words, turnover, as well as profitability and productivity and quality, errors, defects, things like that. And we find dramatic improvements in the performance when you implement a PMI. Now, why do we put it in this book? The reason we put it in this book is, the, is it, it helps um, identify a delivery mechanism. If you're going to foster compassion in an organization, I mean, how in the world do you do that? How do you communicate that we're, this is going to be a culture of forgiveness? How do you create positive energy networks? Something we didn't talk about, but it's but it's one of the things we focus on. I mean, how do you affect climate, meaning, and so on in an organization? This PMI process is one of the best ways we know to, to actually make an intervention in an organization where things change, where positive leadership can actually be displayed. And not only that, it, it gets these managers and supervisors and leaders involved in the development of the people who report to them rather than just swinging into action as a manager when there's a crisis, which seems to be the norm in a lot of organizations. Kim, I, I, I really would like to thank you. We've kind of come up against the end of our time. Uh, but I'd like to thank you for your excellent work and particularly for this wonderful book, Positive Leadership, uh, which you've kind of given us a tour of today. And it's truly a timely book for organizations that you know, not only want to ensure that they have a viable future, but an extraordinary one. It's been great to have this time with you today, and I'd like to encourage our listening audience to purchase a copy of Positive Leadership by visiting bkconnection.com. That's B as in Barrett, K as in Kohler, bkconnection.com. Following our interview today, you are invited to join in this conversation on positive leadership on LinkedIn. Log into LinkedIn search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. You can pose questions for Kim Cameron and discuss this book with your colleagues and peers. You'll also have a link to today's recording uh, interview so that you can share this with others or re-listen yourself. Invite your friends to join this group. In March 2009, my guests will be Dick Axelrod and Peter Garber who each have created some tools for developing employee engagement in the workplace. Join us to learn about their respective employee engagement tools as we discuss the importance of employee engagement during these turbulent times. To be sure you are always in the know about bookend events, go to teamapproach.com and sign up for bookend notifications under, <coughs> excuse me, under the free stuff button on our website today. Thanks again to our wonderful guest, Kim Cameron. It was really great to be with you today. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you so much, Susan. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.